Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Tailgate Till May, your place for year round college sports talk. I'm your host, Stephen Gorgie, and I'm excited to be back to talk about what you care about most in the world of college sports. I have a great show planned for you today. We got some hoops action to discuss, a lot going on in this college basketball offseason. There's transfer portal news, there's NBA draft news, a ton going on in the world of college basketball, so we'll hit on that. And then we'll continue talking football. We're in the midst of spring ball. A lot of teams are wrapping up. So we're going to continue our 2022 season in review series, where today we'll take a look back at the 2022 football season in the ACC. I'm excited to dive into all that. But first, a reminder, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it. If you find podcasts, you can probably find this show. Subscribe to the show. It helps us out a lot. It also helps us out a lot if you give us a a five-star rating and leave a review. And it's also great if you can tell a friend. Spreading the show by word of mouth is one of the best ways that you can help us out if you enjoy what you hear here on Tailgate Till May. You can also find me on Twitter, at Gorgon Sports. That's where I post my various musings as they pop into my brain. So if you like what you hear on this show, you might be interested in following me there on Twitter, at Gorgon Sports. But let's dive right into it and let's start with the hoops because there is so much going on in this college basketball offseason. It's not like it used to be. I feel like there was a time not too long ago where you could kind of watch the Final Four and then put college basketball out of your brain for about five, six months. Not now. Now there is so much movement. There are so many things happening. You have an All-American, Hunter Dickinson, in the transfer portal, and I'm going to get into to what's going on with him and how he could swing this college basketball season, depending on where he ends up. And then you have so many guys declaring for the NBA draft uh, with the ability, many with the ability to still come back. But the NBA announced that 242 players have filed as early entry candidates for this year's NBA draft. These players who entered early must withdraw by May 31st, so a little over a month until we find out who's coming back and who's going to stay in the draft and try to make a pro career. So there is just so much going on in the world of college basketball. So I wanted to highlight a few teams today and uh, really take a look at what's going on with them, what they've done, and how they're looking for the season ahead. And the team I wanted to start with is Gonzaga because they've had a huge last week here. They got news that they've landed two big-time transfers. The first, Ryan Nemhard, a name who is familiar to Gonzaga fans, uh, probably familiar to anybody who watched Gonzaga in the Final Four. His brother was a Zag. Now Ryan Nemhard, the 6'1 transfer point guard from Creighton, will be a Zag as well. He was rated the number 9 transfer by 24-7 Sports. He's a guy who was critical to Creighton's run to the Elite 8 last year, averaged 12 points, 5 assists per game, and was a really important part of that team and looked to be an important part of that Creighton team that has high hopes for next year, but that will not be the be the case. He will follow in his brother's footsteps, Andrew, who transferred from Florida to Gonzaga. Ryan will now transfer from Creighton to Gonzaga, and he will hope to be the next great point guard in uh, a long line at Gonzaga. And then in the front court, Gonzaga landed a big-time transfer in Graham Ike, a 6'9", center from Wyoming who missed all of the 2023 season. He's the number 16 transfer by 24-7 Sports. Uh, He was named the Mountain West Preseason Conference Player of the Year 
in 2020 before the 2023 season uh, before getting injured and missing the entire year. But the year before that, he was an all Mountain West guy. He averaged 19 and a half points, nearly 10 rebounds per game, and he was fifth nationally in fouls drawn per 40 per 40 minutes as uh, he led Wyoming to a, a tournament bid and a first four loss to Indiana. So those are the two big names that Gonzaga landed in the last week. And what I think this says to me is Gonzaga is not going anywhere. There was some fear, you know, with Drew Timmy leaving and Tommy Lloyd now in Tucson as the head coach of the Arizona Wildcats, rather than, than leading up the recruiting efforts as an assistant under Mark Few at Gonzaga, that we had reached kind of the end of an era here for Gonzaga, where Gonzaga was, for my money, the best team, the premier program in all of college basketball. And certainly since 2017, if you want to use that as a as a demarcation point, I think it, they are without a doubt the premier program in college basketball. Over that time, they've received four number one seeds to the NCAA tournament. So that's a number one seed in four out of the last six NCAA tournaments. They almost assuredly would have received the number one seed in in 2020, had the tournament not been canceled due to COVID, they were 31 and two at the time, and uh, so that would have been five uh, number one seed in five out of the last seven. Had that been played, uh, they've been to two national title games since 2017. So since 2017, I think they are clearly the best program in all of college basketball. But there was some real concern. Maybe that was coming to an end. Maybe. Gonzaga's window had closed, especially with Timmy moving on and Tommy Lloyd moving on a couple years ago. Timmy moving on after four years uh, after this season, a huge part of that 2021 runner-up team that was trying to be, win a national title as an undefeated champion that, that just fell short to Baylor. Uh, but what these moves show me is, is that this window is not closed. No, the additions of Ryan Nemhard and Graham E.K., I don't think they turn Gonzaga into a national champion. I don't think they're going to go out and win a national championship this year because of those guys. But what it does is it establishes Gonzaga back in the top 25, back in the top 15. It's a team that is going to be at the top of the college basketball consciousness throughout the year. There's a great chance for them to go out and get a protected seed, a top four seed, and then you don't know what's going to happen in the tournament. The thing I really like about these additions as well is not only Nembart, Nemhard and Ike, but also Steel Venters, uh, a uh, 6'7 guard who they got from Eastern Washington, the number 51 player in the 24-7 sports rankings and the uh, transfer rankings, and the Big Sky Player of the Year in 2023, is that all three of these guys have the potential to play multiple years at Gonzaga. There's no guarantee that you just have them for one year, so it's part of really building a program and uh, if you can get a guy especially a guy like Venters who we hadn't talked about much yet he's a sharpshooter you know career 40% shooter if he's a guy who you're kind of just using um, as a catch and shoot guy to give you some points as a you know fourth option I think you're in a great spot you need those kind of role players and then you can build around those role players with the stars and those are the guys you really want to get from high school um, in in your high school recruiting, but I think this solidifies this Gonzaga program where it's like, okay, they're not going to take a huge step back where they're kind of on the bubble, where they're fighting for a 8, 7, 8, 9, 10 seed. No, it looks like Gonzaga, as always, will be right there in the top 25, top 15. They'll be battling with St. Mary's for the WCC crown, and they really are kind of the Gonzaga that we've come to know and love under Mark Few after all these years. Now, you know, they gotta they gotta make it count with their high school recruiting. They don't have a Chet Holmgren type coming in this year. They don't have a Jalen Suggs type of recruit coming in this year. But that's something that 
um, you know, Mark Few has, has got to make happen without Tommy Lloyd. I guess that does still remain to be seen, but I think it's a very good sign that Mark Few has been able to get this done in the transfer portal the way he has, especially in the instance of Nemhard, where Tommy Lloyd was the guy who recruited his brother to Gonzaga, and by all accounts, it kind of came down to Gonzaga versus Arizona, and Gonzaga came out on top. So I think this is a very good sign for Gonzaga. I think it shows that, you know, Gonzaga is still Gonzaga. They still have an opportunity. The window isn't closed. To me, it's not going to be a national championship this year. It's It could be a Final Four this year. You never know how things break in the tournament. But this is very clearly a top 15 team now with these additions. And uh, I think this shows that Gonzaga moving forward can still be Gonzaga. Another team that I kind of have to mention in the same breath with Gonzaga is Creighton because they are a team that loses Nemhard to Gonzaga. Like I said, a really important part of his team. But what did they do? They go out and they get Stephen Ashworth from Utah State, a guy who was first team all Mountain West this year, a 16 point per game guy, 43% from three, a guy that I really enjoyed watching in the Mountain West tournament. So they replaced Nemhard with Stephen Ashworth. Arthur Kaluma does have his name in the NBA draft. We're going to work under the assumption that he's not coming back, uh, but they do return Ryan Kalkbrenner to Creighton, who was a huge part of that team. So right now, Creighton is number five in Bart Torvik's 2024 projections. Now, of course, T-Rank uh, T Bart Torvik is a data-driven projection system. It's a rating system, and anytime... You know, you're, you're using one of these systems for preseason rankings. You got to take it with a bit of a grain of salt just because there's no telling uh, how things gel in a given year. Anytime you're adding pieces, removing pieces, there is a chemistry component. There's a working together component that numbers don't always capture. But I think having Ryan Kalkbrenner, Stephen Ashworth, and Bailey Shireman all on that roster together is a very good thing. It's a bunch of experienced players. There's a bunch of very good players. And uh, I, I think if you're going to lose Ryan Nemhard, it's a great thing to do to go out and add Stephen Ashworth. And uh, I tip my hat to, to Creighton for finding a way to replace him in the transfer portal. Couple other things I want to hit on from a hoops perspective, and they're kind of Big Ten related here. So Michigan State, by all accounts, is one of these teams that they made their Sweet 16 run, they're bringing a ton back, and they're going to be you know, one of those teams that's in the, all, all the way-too-early top fives. Uh, it, it seems like a Final Four bust year for Izzo and the boys. Well, Michigan State got maybe a little bit of surprising news when A.J. Hogard's, AJ Hogard's name appeared on the NBA draft early entrant list. Um Tom Izzo had hinted at it a couple weeks ago that, you know, maybe A.J. Hogard, maybe Tyson Walker, maybe Jaden Akins, they would put their names in the draft and see what happens. Um, and Jaden Akins had put out a, you know, tweet, a graphic. We knew he, his name was going to be in the draft. We knew he could come back. But we did not know A.J. Hogard was going to be putting his name into the draft until... Um, until the official list came out. There was no, there's no fancy graphic. There was no kind of communication. So that kind of caught some Spartan fans and observers by surprise. And Michigan State has a lot riding on whether these two guys come back. Bart Torvik's site, barttorvik.com, has a great feature called the Roster Cast, where you can take players, add or subtract players from the roster, and see how things change for them. If you take A.J. Hogard and Jaden Akins off this Michigan State team, they go from being the fourth best team in the country to the 12th best team in the country. So much of the projection with Michigan State is based on the fact that they're returning this experienced roster, and they're not only returning an experienced roster, they're adding in key freshmen, big-time big-time uh, freshman players with Jeremy Fears and Xavier Booker. Booker in the front court and Jeremy Fears a point guard. But I think you got, you got to think, you know, 
to me, the perfect the perfect college basketball team is an experienced team that adds really big time pieces either through the transfer portal or um, or through high school recruiting. But you want your core to be that core that has played together for a while, that is experienced with one another, that has been through the battles of the Big Ten together. And I, I feel like that's what Michigan State has if they return uh, Walker, Hogard, and Akins. That's a lot of experience in the backcourt. If you remove those guys and then you're really relying on those freshmen especially Jeremy Fears in in the backcourt to maybe play a bigger role than he would have had to uh, if those guys are there that changes the equation for me and I don't know that it's as much of a sure thing that this is a top 10 team this is a top 5 team I like the idea that you have this experience core you add some big time pieces but those guys don't have a ton of pressure to perform right away. Again, especially fears because there was so much so much experience in the backcourt. Booker, I think, will be thrown a little bit more into the fire no matter what. Yes, uh, Madi Sissoko will be back. Yes, Jackson Kohler will be back. But I think you know, that's one of Michigan State fans haven't loved their front court so much in recent years. And I think there'll be a little more pressure on Booker. But Fears was a guy you could really ease into it a little bit more. And kind of whatever he gave you, he gave you. Uh, if Hogard's gone and Hogard was their highest usage guy last year, their best assist guy, there's going to be a lot more pressure on Jeremy Fears, and I wonder how that changes the dynamic. So uh, Michigan State, that's something to really watch over the next month. You know, If those guys come back, Michigan State will be a top-five team. If not, they might still be listed as a top-ten team, but I think it's a, it's a lot more questionable and something we really have to watch. Another team in the Big Ten that has a huge decision looming is Purdue. No team has more at stake than Purdue. If Zach Eady, the reigning national player of the year, decides to keep his name in the early entrant list, on the early entrant list, and go full bore ahead for the NBA draft, then Purdue is a borderline, I think they're a a bubble team. Um, Torvik would tell tell you that they're a borderline top 25 team. He has them at 20 without Zach Eady, but number one in the country with Zach Eady. And that's kind of how I see it, too. If Zach Eady comes back, Purdue is no doubt about it a top five team in the country. Yes, Purdue lost to Fairleigh Dickinson in the first round of the tournament this year, but Purdue was one of the most dominant teams in the country with one of the most dominant players in the country for most of the year. They got some guys, uh, some young guards that were thrown into the action early that I thought responded relatively well, and if if Edie hadn't been as good as he was and they weren't the number one team in the country for most of the year, if they were around 15, I think you would have heard just everybody singing the praises of Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith, but instead... This team reached such heights that we we had these expectations that they needed to be even more. Um, so I do expect some development. I do expect a, a jump from them there. And then they bring in a guy in Miles Colvin, um, a freshman at Indianapolis, who I think will add some athleticism to this team. I've heard some really good things about him and about his athleticism and what he was doing in the high school game. And I think that's an added dimension for this Purdue team. So if they return Edie, they're top five. If they don't, to me, they're bubble. To Bart Torvik, they're borderline top 25. Either way, a national championship ain't happening without Zach Eady. So that's another huge one to watch in the Big Ten. And then the last college basketball thing we got to get into today may be the biggest college basketball thing that we got to get into today. And that's where will seven foot one center from Michigan, Hunter Dickinson, end up playing his college basketball next year. This may be, Hunter Dickinson may be, the biggest transfer we've ever seen as far as how one player can swing an entire college basketball season. He's a guy who's an All-American. He's a guy who has averaged 17 points and nearly 8.5 rebounds for his career. He's a guy who has done it in the Big Ten 
on the biggest stage in college basketball. He's 24-7 sports number one transfer in this class, and I think he might be the biggest, most important transfer ever. And he is a guy who I truly believe can swing an entire college basketball season. Now, as with any transfer, the same caveats apply. In basketball especially, you never know how guys will play together until they actually play together. And it's the same thing I've said with all the other additions and subtractions that we've talked about today. But on the surface, on its face, Hunter Dickinson is an all-American caliber player, and somebody is going to add him. And of the schools that he's been to so far, he's been to Georgetown, Maryland, Kansas, Kentucky, and he will visit Villanova. There's a couple teams on that list where he can drastically change their season. And just to give you an example, using statistics here, using Bart Torvik's roster cast, if Kansas were to add Hunter Dickinson, they would go from the number nine team in the country to Torvik's number one team in the country. So a top 10 team to the number one team in the country. That could be the difference between a three seed or a four seed and a number one seed or the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament. For Maryland, Maryland's had a really nice offseason so far. Bringing back a couple guys who are using their extra COVID year of eligibility in Jameer Young and Dante Scott. Uh, bringing back Julian Reese, a really talented big man coming back for his junior year, and adding a couple nice freshmen in Kevin Willard's first full freshman class. They've had a nice offseason so far. As at this moment, the Terps, my Terps, are number 35 in Bart Torvik's 2024 projections. You add Hunter Dickinson to that, and they're number 9. So you take a team outside the top 25, that's probably a team much like Maryland this year fighting for like a 7 seed, 8 seed, 9 seed in the tournament, and you make them a top 10 team. That drastically changes the way people look at Maryland, going from fringe top 25 to top 10. And I just don't know if there's ever been a transfer that carries this weight that Hunter Dickinson carries in this season. So if I was Hunter Dickinson, where would I go? Well, I desperately want him to go to Maryland, and I'll get into what I think he would add to Maryland in just a second, but my gut says he ultimately goes to Kansas, and I think he goes to Kansas for a couple reasons. One, he has not had a ton of success team-wise, at Michigan the past couple years. Obviously, this past season, they didn't make the tournament. The year before that, they struggled through much of the regular season before going on their run to the Sweet 16, but they were 11-9 and in the Big Ten, finished 7th in the league. And so it wasn't like they had an outstanding regular season. There was a lot of, a lot of struggles there uh, the previous year for Hunter Dickinson at Michigan. Kansas is a place where you know you're going to compete for a national title. So I think that's one reason why he'd want to go to Kansas. Another reason is Bill Self is a fantastic coach. He's a proven developer of talent. Third, Kansas is not in the Big Ten. The Big Ten is a different sort of grind for big men than the Big 12 is. The Big 12 was, no question, the best league in college basketball last year. Head and shoulders, way better than the Big Ten. But it's still different for a big man with the physicality that a lot of these Big Ten teams play with, with this slower pace, with the aggressive rebounding uh, of a lot of these Big Ten teams, and you're facing guys like Hunter Dickinson last year face Zach Eady, Trace Jackson Davis, uh, Julian Reese, Philip Robracha. You're facing all these guys on a night-in, night-out basis. It's really a grind. The other big benefit of getting out of the Big Ten and going to the Big 12 where the style of play is a little faster, get up and down the court a bit more, uh, it's a little more perimeter focused, is Hunter Dickinson, who has shown some perimeter skills, can showcase those even more, which is something he's going to need to do if he wants to make it at the next level. And I think that would really be beneficial for Dickinson. So those are all the reasons I think he it would be smart for him to go to Kansas, and ultimately my gut says I think he 
ends up there at Kansas. But like I also said, I desperately want him to go to Maryland. And I'll tell you why I desperately want him to go to Maryland. For Maryland, landing Hunter Dickinson would lend a certain level of credibility to what Kevin Willard is building now at Maryland. Uh, He's gotten off to a really nice start, Kevin Willard has, making the tournament in year one, landing a so a really nice 2023 recruiting class, his first high school recruiting class, and getting guys like Jameer Young, like Dante Scott, like Julian Reese to come back and for another year and continue building on what they accomplished in the previous season. But adding Hunter Dickinson would take Maryland from a fringe top 25 team or a, a board, yeah, fringe top 25 team to a top 10 team. And that level of exposure, that level of media attention, that level of excitement around the Maryland fan base would be worth it no matter how it turns out. I think it would turn out really well for Maryland. I think it would put them squarely in contention for a Big Ten title. But I think that's about the limit there. I've talked to some people when they think about adding Hunter Dickinson to this roster, Maryland roster, and they're like, "Ah, I don't know if it makes sense in modern college basketball for Julian Reese and Hunter Dickinson to be on the floor together at the same time. And you know what? I think that's a a fair point, a fair call out. In modern college basketball and modern basketball, we see a lot of positionless basketball, but we also see a lot of just, you know, four guards, uh, four out, one in. And Julian Reese and Hunter Dickinson are both guys that really thrive not out but in. You kind of want them both underneath the basket, both in the paint. That's really where they're both at their best. However, I always like the idea of teams that zig when everybody else is zagging. I'm not saying you can play both of them together for 38 minutes a game, but I think there are times, especially in Big Ten play, where a big lineup where you can throw out 6'8", Dante Scott, uh, 6'9", Julian Reese, and 7'1", Hunter Dickinson as your 3-4-5, that's very different from the way a lot of teams play and can give you an advantage. And especially in the Big Ten, where... You know, size is so important, physicality is so important, I think that can give Maryland a leg up there as well. Now, where I think what Maryland would have to do if they wanted to go out and make a Final Four, if they had dreams of winning a national championship, which, quite frankly, I think are unrealistic at this point, I think what Maryland would have to do is play that lineup at times, but really find ways to play, also play lineups that have that that are more athletic, that are more guard oriented, and they bring in some talented guards with Deshaun Harris Smith, a freshman, Jamie Kaiser, a freshman wing. Um, those are their two top recruits in the class. And so I think they'd have to find a way for those guys to really step up. But at this point, I don't know that that has to be the goal for Maryland. I think getting Hunter Dickinson on campus. Uh, adding him to your roster and putting together a team that can really challenge Purdue and, and Michigan State at the top of the Big Ten, I think that's enough. But as I've talked about so many times, it, to win a national title, you have to be multiple. You have to be able to play left-handed. And I think for Maryland, if they were to add Hunter Dickinson to the roster, playing left-handed would mean putting a, a roster on the court that are putting a lineup on the court, rather, that isn't huge, that is more guard-oriented, or finding a way for uh, to, for Julian Reese to really be a threat from the outside. In his freshman year, I think he showed his ability to play outside and, and hit some outside, outside shots a little bit more. This year, he was asked, he, he played the five. He was asked to play the five, and he, and he really thrived there. Uh, I think the five is the best spot for Julian Reese. I think the four is the best spot for for Dante Scott. So I think that Maryland would have to find lineups where they can play those guys at those spots, also find times where they can get 
they can get Scott, Reese, and Dickinson all on the court at the same time because those three guys plus Jameer Young would certainly be the four best players on Maryland's team, and you got to get your best players on the court at the same time. So I say all that to say, I think for Maryland it would be a, a net very positive thing to add Hunter Dickinson to the roster for the exposure, uh, for the increased attention, as kind of a validation of what Kevin Willard is building there. I also think it would be a very positive thing in terms of Maryland's ability to compete in the Big Ten, potentially win a Big Ten title, which would be a huge step forward for this program, a huge accomplishment for this program. But I also think I would worry about you know, how far they can really go in the tournament playing those three guys, Scott, Reese, and Dickinson at the three, four, and five for the majority of the game. I think Maryland would have to get really creative and find ways to play all those guys, you know, a lot of minutes, but maybe not always that lineup because I think that could expand that could cause some problems stylistically um, as far as it, both on the offense and defensive side, the way modern college basketball is played. And that's okay. That's okay for Maryland if they get Hunter Dickinson and the ceiling is, if I say only win the Big Ten, like that's totally that's that's totally fine. I think any Maryland fan, any reasonable Maryland fan would be perfectly satisfied with that. I'm just looking at it at a very broad perspective and you know, how can you win a national championship? And I don't think Maryland is at that point or needs to be at that point quite yet. Now, another way to approach this offseason for Maryland maybe would have been to go and get a big-time wing. I have no idea if L.J. Cryer would have had any interest in Maryland, but maybe go get a guy like L.J. Cryer as kind of your big star addition. But with Hunter Dickinson being local, uh, with him being familiar with the Big Ten, having played high school basketball with Jameer Young, with Mike Jones as high school coach, now an assistant coach, on Maryland's bench, there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense for Maryland to aggressively pursue Hunter Dickinson. Uh, I understand all of them. They needed to do it, and I desperately hope Maryland gets him because I think it will will lend real credibility to what Kevin Willard is doing at Maryland, what he's building at Maryland. It will only help for the future. And uh, it could also create a, a really fun year for Maryland where they are right at the top of the Big Ten competing for a Big Ten title. And then Maryland fans, we can worry about, you know, how to get to that next step when the time comes. For now, you go out, you land the best transfer in the market, and you call it a day, and, and you just look forward to a really fun season regardless of of necessarily how those pieces might conventionally fit together. So that's what I got on college basketball for today. We will keep you up to date on all the comings and goings of the college basketball offseason. We still got a good month or so to go here where we're getting a lot of news with transfers, with uh guys deciding whether they're going to keep their name in the NBA draft or not. So there is a lot going on in the world of college hoops right now. But there's also a ton going on in the world of college football. We're in the midst of spring games. A lot of schools are through their spring games, through spring practice. So we're going to continue our year in review series, and I'm going to take a look back at the ACC in 2022. And something I really I realize that I should be doing is I should be grading these leagues as I go through them. So uh, I'm going to start with that today, and then I can go, uh, I'll look back real quick at the other leagues we've already done and give them a grade as well. So I'll start. The first league I did was the Big 12. I give the Big 12 an A. Unreal year for the Big 12. One of the most fun leagues to watch. There was so much parody, so many interesting teams, so many interesting games. Uh, there was something fun and exciting every week, both at the very top end with the likes of TCU and Kansas State, kind of, uh, and then also down to like the rising programs with Joey McGuire and what he did at Texas Tech um, in his first year there. So, Big 12, I give an A. The Big 10, I will give the Big 10 a B. 
I think the Big Ten deserves a B because I think at the very top end, that Michigan-Ohio State rivalry right now is second to none. It's so great, and we're seeing it on the recruiting trail right now. In the 2024 class, those two teams are at the top of the 2024 recruiting rankings. Uh, I've talked about it before, but I I just feel like we are in the golden era of the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry, and that's one of the reasons I I put it right. I got to give... I got to give the Big Ten at least a B. On the downside, it really felt like the whole league, it was just Michigan, Ohio State, then Penn State, then everybody else in one big jumble. And it wasn't parody in a fun way. It was parody in a way where you're like, okay, none of these teams can compete with the two at the top or really even the team in third. And you almost felt like you kind of had to just ignore, not ignore those teams, but it was very clear what you were watching. And then those top two teams couldn't come up with the big wins when it mattered most in the college football playoffs. So that's why, for me, the Big Ten gets a B. Uh, that Ohio State-Michigan game, is unbelievable. That rivalry is unbelievable right now. And I think this year, the league has the potential to, to really grade out a lot higher to me. I think it's the, the league I'm actually most looking forward to watching in the year ahead because I think it's a three-team race with Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State. This could be the year that the Big Ten gets two teams in the college football playoff. There's so much excitement around Wisconsin uh, with new head coach Luke Fickle and Matt, and Matt Rule at Nebraska and Maryland returning to Leah Tungavailoa. Um, can Maryland win nine games this year, win eight games? this year I think there's a lot to, more to look forward to in the Big Ten this year but for last year I'm going to give the Big Ten a B now let's move on to the ACC the conference that we're really focusing on today and I am going to give the ACC a D for 2022 it was an awful year for the ACC Clemson ran away with the league didn't even really feel particularly close they were 8-0 in the league, but they also never really felt like a legit college football playoff contender. They ultimately finished the year 11-3. They lost to uh, Notre Dame, South Carolina, and then, let's see, who did they lose to in the Orange Bowl? Who did you lose to in the Orange Bowl, Clemson? I remember it wasn't particularly close. Tennessee. Tennessee in the Orange Bowl. And it just kind of showed when Clemson stepped out of conference, they didn't really compete very well with those two SEC teams and then a not particularly great Notre Dame team. Um, and a really disappointing year for the conference with Clemson kind of running away with it, uh, but not being able to comp- compete on the national stage and nobody else in the conference really being able to challenge a Clemson team that wasn't competing on the n- national stage. The ACC felt like an afterthought in the national picture last season, and I think it's really unfortunate for them. There were only five teams that overachieved their preseason SP Plus rating, and that was Duke, Florida State, Wake, Louisville, and Syracuse. And Syracuse just barely did. Uh, Only one team, Clemson, finished in the SP Plus Top 25. Florida State was in the Top 30, and those were the only two teams in the Top 30 from the ACC. Uh, So just a very disappointing year overall for the ACC. But let's look at it a little more positively. Let's look at some of the teams who were satisfied with their season in the ACC. And there weren't a ton of them. But the team you got to start with when you talk about who was satisfied was Florida State. Florida State went 10-3 and overall, including a bowl game win over Oklahoma. They lost three straight in the middle of the year to Wake, NC State, and Clemson. That dropped them to 4-3, and but then they won out. They won six in a row from there, and they ended the season on a very high note. What had plagued them for years had been lack of all offensive line depth, and that seems like that has really been figured out. And they are going into this season with some super high expectations. Uh, I looked at it earlier today, and I thought I had wrote, written it down, but I guess not. Uh, but Florida State is very high up there in the national championship odds on FanDuel right now. I think only five teams 
had better odds to win the national championship in 2023 than the Florida State Seminoles. And that is not something that I think we would have even considered a year or two ago. Um, They're doing a great job down there in Tallahassee. There's a lot of excitement around that program. Quarterback Jordan Travis is back. Uh, He was... He, he, he was a really good performer in the previous year, and Florida State is starting to feel a lot more like the Florida State that we'd known in the 90s and early 2000s. And yes, here it is, Florida State 18-1 to to win the national championship, only behind Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, and USC. And now I think that is too high for them, honestly. I think they're going to be favored in. Uh, they, they, I know they're going to be favored in a ton of these games. I know they're going to be favored by pretty large margins in a lot of these games. However, that is a huge step to take for for this Florida State program, and I think sometimes we overestimate as how quickly you can go from you know fighting for bowl eligibility to a, a true national championship contender. I mean, let's not forget, this is a team that just two years ago in 2021 lost to Jacksonville State at home and went 5-7, and seven, missed a bowl game. So I like Florida State a lot. I like this Florida State team. I was hoping that I would like get some pretty good odds to bet on them to win the ACC this year. That certainly doesn't look like it's going to be the case at all, given that they are 18-1 to to win the national championship. And if you look at the ACC odds, they are the favorite on FanDuel, plus 155. Clemson right behind them at plus 185. Uh, I, I was hoping I'd get a little more... I'd get a, a little better price on them. So I I think Florida State had a great season. I think they should be very happy. I know they're hungry for more. Uh, I don't know if they're quite there yet in terms of being a college football playoff contender. And you look at the 2022 team composite ratings on 24-7 sports, which basically says how much talent do you have on your roster, they were 17. That's not where quite where you need to be to compete for a national title. Uh, they they've done a great job in the transfer portal this season, bringing in a ton of talent. They brought in a pretty good class in the class of 2023, but it's number 19. It's not like a, a number five class. So they've been they've been upping the talent level. They've been doing a really good job. They should be very satisfied with the year that they had. I just don't know that they are true national title contenders as of yet, which is fine which is absolutely fine. They don't need to be national title contenders yet, but if they continue on this trajectory, I think they will be, but it's hard to go from 9 and 3 to 12 and 0. Hard to go from 9 and 3 to 11 and 1. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. They have some good pieces. They have a good quarterback. They have a great pass rusher in Jared Verse. He's a guy who could potentially be the ACC defensive player of the year next year, and uh, they got a lot to look forward to. I just want to temper expectations a little bit in terms of, you know, are they national championship contenders? Another team who is certainly not a national championship contender in this upcoming season, but is certainly a team that is very happy with how last season finished, is the Duke Blue Devils. In their first year under new head coach Mike Elko, they had an unreal season, going 8-4 and four in the regular season, finishing things off with a military bowl win over UCF to earn nine wins on the year. This is a program that looked absolutely down and out in the previous couple seasons. They went three and nine in 2021. Uh, they went two and nine in 2020 and they they, they struggled in all facets of the game. They finished with a top 40 defense per SP plus in in 2022. And on the offensive side, they'll return their starting quarterback, Riley Leonard, for another year. Just a fantastic job by Mike Elko in year one as head coach there. And they got to be feeling really good in Durham about the, the progress on that team. My last satisfied team, I'm going to list as Pitt. And I'm only going to call them semi-satisfied because I don't think they were 
They were fully satisfied with how the season went. Uh, they did go nine and four on the year, uh, a year after winning the ACC, a huge accomplishment for the, this Pitt program. But it felt like the way this year shook out just maybe left a little bit to be desired. The ACC Coastal was potentially there for the taking once again, and they fell short. Um, They fell short, you know, early in the year. They had a loss to Georgia Tech at home, which if they, you know, get that game, uh, then they, they lost a game at Louisville. Like, maybe things are different. They ended up finishing a game behind North Carolina, who they, lo- who they lost to on the road. So I guess I'll say, you know, maybe, maybe it's more than, than semi-satisfied. Um, I don't know what more you can expect than an ACC title followed by a nine-win season at Pitt. I guess it just kind of felt like the way the season shook out, maybe the Coastal was there for the taking, and maybe, uh, maybe you know, it could have been Pitt who who took advantage of it. Keaton Slovis was a guy who came in a quarterback this past season. Now they're going to turn to Phil Dracovic, uh, transfer from Boston College, who ACC fans should be familiar with. So it'll be interesting to see there what Pitt does in the year ahead. I mean, Pat Narduzzi, to his credit, has really built a solid program there. I mean, I've already talked about it, winning the ACC in 2022, following it up with a nine-win season, um, with a nine-win season last year, and it's just become a a consistent winner. It's a team that consistently goes to bowl games, um, and now is in the conversation for for competing for conference titles. So I think Pitt is semi-satisfied to satisfied with the year that was in 2022. My next category: disappointed with the results, but excited for the future. And I think this team, this category has to start with North Carolina because North Carolina, uh, they had at times a, a fun season last year. But I know that North Carolina fans do not love the way that season ended. I mean, there was talk in the beginning of November as they sat at 9-1, and one, maybe North Carolina can be a, a playoff team if they win out. Maybe they can do it. Well, what did Carolina do at that point? They lost their last three regular season games. They go to the Holiday Bowl, and they lose to Oregon. So a little bit disappointed with the results, 9-5 and five overall, but they had Drake May, and that is reason to be excited for the future. Drake May, the freshman, now will be sophomore quarterback in the 2023 season, was a revelation last year. He was a guy who can do anything on the field, through 38 touchdowns to seven interceptions in in 2022 and was from from the jump from that Appalachian State game my favorite player one of my favorite players to watch in all of college football if I was just going to turn a game on and you know watch for for entertainment purposes uh make and throw it he can run, he's huge, he's fun, and he could be a guy who's eventually a number one pick in the NFL draft. So there is a ton of reason to be excited for North Carolina with having Drake May, even though the year didn't quite finish the way that they probably wanted it to. Another team that I think falls into this bucket is Louisville. And Louisville has to do less with really you know, how the year went and more about the fact that that they now have Jeff Brom returning home as the head coach. The Scott Satterfield experiment just seemed like it was, he just never seemed like a fit there from the start. He seemed like he was constantly trying to get out of there. And then they seemed like they were, they didn't really want him there either. But Jeff Brom, a Louisville guy, played at Louisville, had a ton of success as a head coach at Purdue, and now he comes home, and I think there's just a ton of excitement around that for the Louisville Cardinals. My next team here, and I really debated whether I need should put them in this category or the anxious category, I think it's the Miami Hurricanes. There was a lot of expectations with Mario Cristobal coming in, uh, another guy returning home to Miami, and... 
combining Mario Cristobal, who had really turned Oregon into a college ball playoff contender once again, with Tyler Van Dyke, a, a quarterback who had shown a ton in the 2021 season, is one of the guys that everybody loved coming into last year at the quarterback position. Uh, the expectations were high for Miami. And they failed to live up to those expectations. They went 5-7 and seven last year. But the reason I say I think they're excited for the future still is because Miami, what did Miami do? They went out and they brought in the number seven recruiting class in the country ahead of USC, ahead of Oregon, ahead of Tennessee, ahead of Clemson, ahead of Notre Dame, ahead of Penn State, ahead of Florida, ahead of Texas A&M. They pulled in two five-stars. 14 four-stars, and given Mario Cristobal's track record, it seems like a no-brainer that he will be able to build Miami the same way he built Oregon. And I think this recruiting class is the start of it. Tyler Van Dyke is back again. It got a little iffy for a second uh, over the last couple of weeks. Like, is he going to stick around? Maybe he's headed somewhere else. But he is. He's there. Uh, we'll see how he does this year. So I think that the, the that recruiting class is still putting Miami fans in the disappointed with the results last season, but excited for the future category. Then I get to my, my anxiety category. And I got five teams in this category. Clemson, NC State, Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech, and Virginia. Clemson, I think, is obvious. I have called what Dabo Swinney did at Clemson, winning national titles there, the most impressive coaching job I have seen in all of my time watching college football. But the DJU era at Clemson, didn't go as anybody expected. When he came into that Notre Dame game, or when he started that Notre Dame game, that performance he put up against Notre Dame during the 2020 COVID season, it seemed like this was a guy who was just going to step right in for Trevor Lawrence, and he was going to be the next great Clemson quarterback. And it didn't go that way. And he was better in 2022 than he was in 2021. Uh, but the offense still wasn't good enough. And now Clemson is left feeling like, where do we stand in college football? Because it was Alabama and Clemson for a time. It ain't Alabama and Clemson anymore. Georgia has taken that spot. It's Georgia now. Georgia, the back-to-back -back national champion Georgia Bulldogs, are number one. Alabama's probably still with them as number two, I would say. But Clemson is not that team. Clemson is a team that won its league, ran away with its league, but was really not close to winning the national title. And now maybe that all changes with, with Cade Klubnik, uh, you know, the next, possibly next great Clemson quarterback, maybe... It was just not a good fit with DJU and Clemson, and he'll do better at Oregon State. He had some interesting comments this week about how it just wasn't really a fit for him at Clemson and what they were doing on offense. So, you know, maybe maybe things do get right back on track. But Clemson had an outstanding defense the last two years, and they quite frankly wasted it. And in this sport, things change quick. Teams rise and fall all the time, or at least I should say the teams that are not traditional blue bloods can rise and fall really quick. And for as good as Clemson has been over the last 10 years, Clemson is still not a program that has a hundred years of football success. They're not Ohio State, where Ohio State has basically never been bad in their program's history. Clemson is still relative new money in this sport in terms of winning national titles and being year-in, year-out national title contenders. And I feel like Clemson fans have to be feeling anxious right now about their place in the sport. Now, I think there are some things that are probably making Clemson fans feel a little bit better, a little less, less anxious, Garrett Riley being the next Clemson offensive coordinator has to make them feel a little bit better. Dabo Swinney, Swinney stepping outside the, the Clemson family, stepping outside his tree and going and getting Garrett Riley, uh, I think is something that, you know, you can point to and say, okay, much like I talked about with Gonzaga earlier, 
this run's not done yet. They can go. They they go out and get a high profile guy like that. Uh, it shows that you know they're serious still about reestablishing themselves as the as the team to beat in the ACC and the team that's going to be in the college ball playoff every year from the ACC and competing for national champions. I mean, they went out and they got the offensive coordinator of the team that was the runner up in the sport. That's a that's a power move right there. So that'll make them feel a little bit better. But I still think Clemson fans feeling anxious about their place in the sport. NC State, another team feeling really anxious, I think. And the old joke with NC State is like, you know, when you don't expect anything from them, they'll go out and they'll win eight games. When you expect them to win the conference, they'll go out and win eight games. And it was kind of another one of those years for NC State. You know, yes, Devin Leary got injured, but to be perfectly honest with you, I was never that impressed. I did not understand why Devin Leary was the preseason ACC player of the year. I was never super impressed with Devin Leary in his time at NC State. He was a good quarterback, but to me, he wasn't like some Heisman contender. And uh, the offense just wasn't quite good enough. Very good defense for NC State. Not the best offense. And uh, they went out and they won eight games. They went eight and four. They lost the bowl game to Maryland. Finished eight and five. An uninspiring year for NC State. An NC State program that was talking about, can this be the year NC State you know, takes down Clemson and wins the ACC? It wasn't the year. It wasn't the year that they wanted and again, I feel like NC State fans have to be feeling very anxious, very self-conscious about like where do we fit in this sport? I feel like a lot of these ACC teams have to be feeling like that. Where do we fit in this sport? Given that we right now can't compete with the team at the very top of our league and the team at the very top of our league can't compete with the SEC very well. That is not a good feeling, not a good place to be for a program like NC State that, let's be honest, they feel like they should be at the level of a Mississippi State, for example, or some of those mid-lower tier teams in the SEC. I don't think it really feels that way for them right now. Virginia Tech, throw them in the same boat. Virginia Tech, though, was downright bad in 2022. They went 3-8. Obviously, it was Brent Venable's First, I'm sorry, uh, not Brent Venables. It was, there are so many damn Brents out there. We got Brent Key at Georgia Tech now. We got Brent Venables at Oklahoma. But at Virginia Tech, it is Brent Pry. It's Brent, it was Brent Pry's first year down in Blacksburg, and things didn't go well. And things have not gone very well for Virginia Tech for a while. And I'm not saying Virginia Tech fans think they already give up on the Brent Pry era. But I understand why they're feeling very anxious right now because Virginia Tech was a team that came into the ACC and they really dominated the league when they entered it. And now when you talk about the preeminent programs in the ACC, I don't even know that Virginia Tech gets mentioned outside of its its history. I mean, we're looking at the last time that Virginia Tech finished the season in an AP poll in the top 25 was 2017. They finished 24th. They went 9-4 and four that season. That's a fall from grace for Virginia Tech. And, you know, it's the end of the Frank Beamer and the whole Justin Fuente era uh, runs together a little bit, but they, they just were not a very good team over the course of that over the course of that time which really spanned like 10 years and you know now Brent Pry comes in he's going to try to clean up the mess and get it back on track but I think Virginia Tech fans in general are feeling very anxious about their place in the sport Georgia Tech I have in this category just because I feel like when Jeff Collins came in and took over for Paul Johnson there was so much excitement about okay we are getting away from the triple option. That was the thing that was holding us back from really competing with the other teams in our region. I mean, we're a program smack dab in the middle of Atlanta. You know, 
we can compete. We should be able to compete. We were once a team in the SEC. We should be able to compete. And it was just that triple option was holding us back. And Jeff Collins came in and he did all the right, quote unquote, right things on social media and selling the program, et cetera. And it didn't work. And they didn't get the recruits. They didn't get the the. They didn't recruit at the level that they wanted to. Uh, they didn't really capture the imagination or the attention of Atlanta, and they didn't win a lot of football games. And they they did step things up once Brent Pry took over. Did it again? Did it again? Willie's Brents. They did step it up once Brent Key took over as the interim coach. But I think there's still some anxiety, and Brent Key will now is now the permanent head coach. But I st- still think there's a lot of anxiety among Georgia Tech fans and less excitement with this new tenure. I feel like it's more anxiety about like, okay, we thought Jeff Collins was doing all the right things. It didn't work. Maybe we're just maybe we had it good with Paul Johnson. Maybe winning those eight nine games, occasionally winning the league, w- was was our ceiling. And I feel like there's anxiety with with Georgia Tech. Uh, I think there were some Georgia Tech fans that really would have liked to have Willie Fritz, Tulane's head coach, be their next head coach. It seemed like kind of an obvious fit, and uh, they didn't end up going that way. So I think Georgia Tech fans right now fall in that anxious category. The last team that I had originally put in this anxious category was Virginia, and I think I need to revise that. And I don't know, maybe at Virginia, I don't know if you can really categorize them. Uh, they were not having a very good year, and then uh, tragedy struck that campus, struck that program, and they didn't play the last two games of their season. But if we kind of just look at you know the games they actually did play last season and everything that happened up to that horrific tragedy... Virginia was was not very good in Tony Elliott's first year at the helm there. And I don't I don't have a, the greatest sense in the world of what Virginia fans are, you know, felt like in the midst of that season. Um, obviously at the end of the season, uh, football was the, the the furthest thing from anyone's mind as, you know, and I think that that's 100% right. Um, football wasn't important at that point, but you know, if we're going to talk about the football and the 10 games that they played, they were not very good in those 10 games. Uh, Brennan Armstrong, you know, now the quarterback now leaves. He's off to Wake Forest. And I think you kind of just write that whole year off for Tony Elliott and see what he comes back with in the next couple years. So I don't really know how to categorize this Virginia team right now, to be quite honest. Um, and so I think we'll just have to see what goes on with Virginia in the next, you know, one, two years uh, as the Tony Elliott era continues and he, he, he gets some of his guys in there and, and he tries to build something. My last category, I'm going to run through real quick because it's just the meh, the meh category. And to me, that was Wake, Syracuse, and Boston College. Wake should have been fun, could have been fun. They had a great offense. They had a terrible defense. And Wake Forest uh, was just a team that was exactly that. Great offense, terrible defense. They go 3-5 and five in the conference. Their offense was way better than a 3-5 and five offense in that league. Uh, Sam Hartman, ton of fun to watch. A.T. Perry at receiver, ton of fun to watch. But the defense just couldn't get the job done. And it's like, I guess, you know, to put it, think about it in context, for Wake... Anytime, anytime you make a bowl game at Wake, I think that's an accomplishment. But from the outside, it was just kind of meh. Boston College, 3-9, and nine, didn't make a bowl. Um, I don't have much to say about this program. They're just meh to me right now. And Syracuse, 7-6 and six on the year. They go to a bowl. Garrett Schrader at quarterback coming back again this year. Uh, and Dino Babers still, you know, keeping his head above water. At Syracuse, they're not the most riveting program to me right now, uh, but they are keeping their head above water, and we'll see what Dino Babers has in store for us in 2023. You know, it did seem like they had something; they've they've gotten something decent going there with Garrett Schrader, and uh, you know, maybe he can take that next step 
in 2023 and get Syracuse to be kind of like an eight-win team. But for me, the last season was just kind of meh, not really too interested in in what Syracuse had going on. So I'll end this show quickly with three burning questions for the league. One, Clemson loses three all-ACC all players on the defensive line in Miles Murphy, Brian Bressy, and K.J. Henry. And those are guys we all expect to be drafted uh, over the next couple days of the NFL draft. How do they deal with, with those losses? Because the defense has been the rock, and the defensive line in particular has been the rock of the of Clemson the last couple of years. There's been so much quarterback talk, but the defensive line has just had elite talent. It's been a place you didn't have to worry about at all. How do they respond to losing those three guys and, and replacing those guys? Florida State, we talked about a lot. But can Florida State take that next step up? Can they take a step up and go from that nine-win team to a true college ball playoff contender? I'm I'm not sold on it right now. They do have they are number one in Bill Connolly's returning production metric that he released in February. Now that'll change a little bit as the spring goes on here. Hopefully we'll get an update on that number soon. Uh, but as of February, they were number one. So they return a lot. They were good last year. Can they take a step up? Because along those same lines, the question is, how do you respond when you're the hunted rather than the hunty? It's a different mindset. And then the final burning question I have is North Carolina. How much can their defense improve? Because in Drake May, they have a Heisman caliber quarterback. They have a first-round quarterback on that roster. But much like Wake Forest with their great offense last year and North Carolina last year, you know they had the same issue. Great offense terrible defense. North Carolina finished 16, uh, 16th in offensive SP+, plus, Bill Connolly's metric, and 105th in defensive SP+. Plus. How much can North Carolina's defense improve? Because they have a great quarterback on that roster, and they have a great offense. Those are the things I will be watching as we get into the 2023 ACC football season. That's our show for today. I'll be back next week to talk more college football or college basketball offseason and continue looking back at the year that was in college football. Next week, we'll do the Pac-12. The week after that, the SEC. Thanks for listening as always. I'll talk to you next week. And until next time, keep the grill hot and the cooler cold. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com listen.